Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 101 of the Howie Games Part A. Thanks for giving the show some of your time. Over the last couple of months, we've been dropping an episode every week with the aim of hopefully spreading a little bit of positivity in these difficult times. And the metrics, the metrics, a term the big wig podcast bosses use. To you and me, it simply means the number of people listening to the show. Well, the metrics have gone off the charts. Last month was the show's biggest ever. So thank you all for backing in the podcast. But from now on, we are reverting back to an episode every two weeks. However, We are looking at some other forms of content to drop into the feed along the way to keep you going. I haven't quite figured out what that is yet, but the R&D team, which is me, the pickle, the big penguin and Das are working on it. I wouldn't say feverishly, but we're plugging away, so stay tuned on that one. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Alrighty, time to get stuck into episode 101 featuring, if you don't mind, the 1989 World Surf Champion and World Surf League commentator, a man that has lived quite the life, Martin Potter. So Martin Potter still in position out there. Nobody has priority, but Martin Potter again is in the driver's seat and he is paddling. Looks like a really good way for Martin. Martin is going for a big re-entry here. Look at Potter. He is projecting down the line. Big floater aerial re-entry. Potts, as he is universally known, is a fascinating man. You do not need to have any interest in surfing to get something from this story. Martin mostly competed in the 1980s, a time when surfing was finding its competitive self. Packed beaches, fluoro boardies, long hair, even longer parties. Everything was big, bold, and by gee, she was overstated. We're dropping in on the South Shore for a full range. This place is a total carnival. Huge crowds and tons of sun. There's a $4,000 bodyboarding contest and over $3,000 is up for grabs in the Bikini Challenge. But we're really here to see the world's best surfers battle it out for the $10,000 first prize. I told you, I told you, didn't I? Four grand for the bodyboarders, the Bikini Challenge. The Bikini Challenge, nearly one third of the surfing winners check. Radical dudes. It was on this colourful backdrop that our man Potts blazed a spectacular path of individuality, revolution, and a wonderful non-conformist attitude. For those that actually follow the World Surf League and are missing it like me, a sneaky heads up for you all. Keep an eye out on their website, worldsurfleague.com, for an announcement on July 9 about the rest of the 2020 season, worldsurfleague.com, July 9. You'll get some more information then. So many lost and left behind no one seemed to care those who should seems like they're blind pretending they're not there can't they see they hold the key could make things better if they try oh my jaja tell me why won't they open up their eyes now in this episode potts tells some wild tales about growing up in south africa in the apartheid era joining a group of tough competitive, aggressive surfers on tour as a 15-year-old, 
family relationships, the wave that defined his life, in competition, Biffo, and more recently, a life in the commentary box, including being on air when Mick Fanning was attacked by a shark at Jay Bay. As we look at Fanning on the rankings, oh, you can see a little splash. Oh. Holy shit. Excuse me. But the real gist of what Martin is all about, what defines him still today, is his attitude towards life and living. He has an unwavering determination to forge his own path, no matter the resistance. Potts has the courage to be an outlier. Enjoy the story of Martin Potter. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed King Selassie, I come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a world surf champion, a commentator of great renown, and a man that has lived a tremendously full life, which I can't wait to speak to him about. It's a thrill for me. Martin Potter, otherwise known as Potts, how are you, great man? Yeah, good, Howie. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm loving it. Just uh, hanging in as we all are. As I said, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and we'll get, Potts, to your journey. But the obvious question to me, and I've been reading a lot about you in the last few days um, and watching videos with my kids, which has been entertaining <laughs> because there's some real good 80s gear there oh, yeah. and fluoro and hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. But what what is it like living life as someone who pushes against the rules? Is it an easy life? Is it a fun life? Do you know what I mean by yeah, that question? Yeah, I do. Um, it's it's not an easy life. Um, it's a lot funner than it is easy. Um, right. Because you're following, you know, you're walking to the beat of your own drum. You know, you, you're pushing the envelope, you know, the way you feel like it should be um, and not really caring about what other people say or think about it. And I think that's the hardest part in our society today. Everyone is so self-conscious about doing something in case someone says something about it. Or someone posts, oh, my God, what did you do that for, you know? So mm. people don't want to feel like idiots. But for me, I was like I saw the, the, the path that I needed to be on and, and, and that's what I did. I mean, I stuck to it. It took me a lot longer to be uh, as successful as I wanted to be because of it. Um, because it was because I was going against the grain, um, the judging and all that other stuff didn't quite, you know, match up to me until the late 80s and 89 where it all sort of came together. So it basically took nine years of, you know, pushing against it and against it and against it. And finally, I was almost going to crack and conform, but they cracked first because surfing needed to go somewhere. So I was very fortunate in that happening. Otherwise, I might have finished my career with no world title. Um, you know, I was getting six points for a, for a big aerial manoeuvre where um, Dave McCauley was getting an eight for three turns that was kind of stock standard manoeuvres. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I thought, well, there's, there's got to be a change because the crowd are, are lighting up when I have my ways, but the judges aren't lighting up with the score, so there's something going on here. You know, it's a lot funner than it is, um, you know, I think had I conformed a lot earlier, maybe I would have won more world titles, but then I wouldn't be who I am today. We'll get through that journey, and for those that, that don't follow surfing, explain what you brought to the sport and how it changed it. So that's not conforming 
in your sport, in some ways you probably haven't conformed in your life. Are you still a non-conformist <laughs> or as you get older, do you sleep back to the middle lane or do you like still being out there on, on the right lane? Um, I, I, You know what, I don't do it as much anymore, but I still love, you know, driving fast when I'm not allowed to. Um, you know, there's still a, a little bit of rebel in me that, that, that likes to do something that's, that you're not allowed to do. But, um, you know, with having kids that, that are looking up to you and respecting you and, and following your every move, you, you kind of got to pull your head in sooner or later. Um, you know, Jack always says to me, well, you left school when you were 15. I said, yeah, but you're not me. So, you know, yeah. you're not allowed to leave school when you're 15, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, there's, you, you know, I, I think there's still that element of, of that in me. Um, you know, just the other day I was big and wild and woolly and crazy out there and I, I was kind of a bit nervous and I thought, you know what, I used to love this, so get out and do it. And kind of got me back into that moment, that momentum of, you know, just surfing when it's crazy and out of control and not really giving a shit about it. So um, there is that element still there, but it's slowly diminishing slightly. Um, but um, every now and again, it rears its head. You still love to surf, obviously. Those that don't know, I actually didn't realise that you live just the other side of the bay to me. I'm on the Bellarine, you're on the okay. Mornington Peninsula. Yep, so yep. you're still, you're still... Do you still love surfing as much as, or do you love it more? Um, I love it more in different ways. You know, I think, um, you know, before when I was a, a competitor, I used to get a lot a lot, a lot angrier. Uh, um, I used to get really upset when I didn't surf well. You know, you always want to be the best guy in the water day in and day out when you're a competitor. So when things don't go right, you've got a really bad attitude and that can rub off and people think, oh, God, what an asshole that guy is. Uh, but you're just so passionate about your sport, you want to be the best. So when you make a mistake... You really beat yourself up about it. Now I can have a bit of a laugh when I fall off. Um, I've gone back to riding twin fins a lot more. You know, so I'm experimenting with different boards rather than riding that, that, that basic thruster that I knew would go no matter where I took it around the world. So now my, my quiver, I've got about 30 boards in the garage and every single one of them are different. Single fins, twin fins, thrusters, quads, big boards, small boards, fishes, you know, boards with no fins. Like you, You've got to get out there and enjoy it and every day there's, a way that you're going to enjoy that kind of board on. So it just keeps it fresh, it keeps it exciting, and it keeps it fun, you know. 30 boards, that's impressive. And I like the ones over your back shoulder there <laughs> at the moment. We might chat about those and surfboard design later on. But you've got a fascinating family history, Pots. Hopefully you're happy to explore some of it with me. Yep. But born in the UK. Yep. Born in Blythe, Northumberland, uh, just outside of Newcastle. Uh, so not a typical I, spot for a world no, surf champion to come from. No, not at all. But I've since found there are actually world quality waves up there. Um, right. Water's dirty and freezing cold, but there are classic waves up there. Um, when I was two years old, my parents moved to South Africa. My dad had a, a job opportunity. He was a, a pipe fitter and he got a, a, a job opportunity with a company called Sassel Oil. So we moved to inland South Africa when I was around two years old. Whereabouts? A place called the Orange Free State. Okay. Um, so we moved there. My dad worked. Uh, f- that was kind of a base, and he jumped to Sudan and do all these shutdowns on these big old refineries and stuff because he was a pipe fitter. So um, we, it was only meant to be a year, and then we were going to come back to England. Um, but my parents fell in love with the weather, the climate. You know, it was um, – and back then there wasn't um, – because of apartheid, it was kind of a safe place to live. Um, you what, know, what, what's your first memories of Africa? My first memories of Africa were probably around four or five years old, swimming in a swimming pool. I remember doing a lot of swimming as a young boy uh, before I even saw the ocean. I didn't see the ocean until I was about 10. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was a water kid from, from the get-go, I suppose, but also grew up with a ball on my foot. My dad was a, a, a avid soccer player, so I picked up soccer as a kid as well and played competitive soccer all the way up until I was 15 years old. Uh, right when I went on tour, I had to go and give my, you know, tell my coach I wasn't playing anymore because I was turning pro <laughs> at, at, at surfing. And he said, well, you can turn pro at soccer as well. Why not? You know, and I, so I chose the surfing path. Um, could have been either way for me. Um, my dad was pretty upset with the whole idea, but um, yeah, I, I just remember swimming a lot in, in swimming pools uh, in middle, middle South Africa. So you're in South Africa, as you said, in, you know, what's historically and rightfully been judged as, as a pretty terrible time for the country when apartheid was dominating the country. I guess as a young bloke at your age, you don't really have any understanding of what's going on around yeah. you at that point. 100%. Um, I had no clue. I thought it was just the way life was. Um, you know, we had we had a, a maid and a, and, a, and a garden guy that would come and clean our gardens every couple of days, but we treated them with respect. We didn't, you know, we didn't sort of look at them because we're, I guess my parents were English. They didn't have yep. that streak in them. They didn't have that, um, you know, that, that horrible streak that, that, you know, you, you tend to see or I got to see as I grew up and started understanding it. Um, so, you know, it was blind, you know, I was living in a, in a country that I thought was the best place in the world. And, and there were, for me, there was no issues, but those issues did start surfacing later in life. Um, your mum must have been a remarkable woman in a way because you look back at it now and, and, and you're, you're a parent, like taking at that stage uh, young kids from England to South Africa, that's a big move for a family, isn't it? That's, that's the wild yonder oh, at that stage. Absolutely. I mean, that was huge for them to do that. Um, you know, and as I said, it was, it was only meant to be for a year. My dad was going to go make hay while it shined. He was, he was offered really good money. Uh, he was going to work his ass off for a year. Then we were going to come back to England and, um, you know, basically just sort of settle back into the way of life up there. But um, as fate had it, that was not to be. And South Africa became our permanent residence for, for quite some time. And you ended up in Durban, a place with nice warm water and good waves. <laughs> yep. So um, you go on, go on. Yeah, when, we, when I was uh, nine years old, my parents... Um, it all started going a bit left of centre in, inland. Um, farms around us were, were getting pill, pillaged and, you know, there was bad stuff happening. So my parents said, look, we've got to get out of here. Um, we're going to go and move down to Durban, which is on the coast. Uh, my brothers and I had never seen the ocean before, so we basically left all our furniture, threw whatever we could in the back of the car with the dog, and we drove um, two days to get to the ocean. And... That's an adventure. Um, yeah, that was a massive adventure. And at nine years old, we pulled up uh, right on the Durban beachfront. We jumped out the car and me and my brother stood there and this guy rode a wave. And I looked at him and I said, we've got to try that. That looks so much fun, you know. And that was kind of the, the seed was planted that day. And from that day on, pretty much all I could think about was riding waves. What was it about it that it captured a man that had never seen, a boy that had never seen the ocean to well, thinking, right, I want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was always thought... Never really understood what what a wave was, you know. Growing up in inland, you know, was surrounded by pools, swimming pools. That was kind of the only water that I knew. And to see this water moving and and this and it standing up and these guys riding these waves was kind of surreal, you know. And, and I remember it was a left hander and this goofy footer guy, and he rode it all the way through, and he was riding a red a red board, and it just looked like looked like he was flying almost, you know. And I was like, we've got to do that. And 
um, we both saved up our pocket money and bought a secondhand board from down the, the secondhand shop. And we What'd were. Oh, it was just an old single fin. It was like three and a half inches thick, and was it was a six ten, and uh, I could we couldn't even carry it. It was so thick and heavy. So we would drag it down to the beach, and my brother, because he was older, he would go first, and whenever he fell off, it was my turn. So that's how we would take turns, and I'd just stand in the shore break, and when he fell, I'd grab the board. And it was my turn to ride the wave, and uh, I thought, okay, just don't fall off, and then you'll have more turns. So from a, from a young age, I was like, okay, if, if I don't fall off, I, I get more waves. So um, <laughs> that's how I got better and better and better. And um, yeah, that was like the beginning of the end for me, really. It's it's a remarkable progression because people listen to this and think, oh, well, he probably turned t- uh, pro when he was 20 or 21. You know, you, you, you were surfing in pro competitions at age 15. But before we get to that, how quickly did you pick it up? You must were you exceptional right from the start because of the timeline I'm explaining to people. Within yeah. six years, you're a professional surfer. You must have picked it up pretty quickly, Potts. I did. Um, I think the first day we were both we were both standing up for the first day. I mean, no coaching, no leashes. You know, we we basically were we didn't even know we had to wax the board up. That's how green behind the ears we were. So, um, but we both picked it up. My brother was actually better than me uh, when we started. He was and he had. He had a style like Mark Richards with those arms that stick out sideways and he had this big Afro hairdo and, I mean, he just looked like he should have been a professional surfer, but he wasn't a competitive person. You know, he loved riding waves, but um, for me I was the other, I was the opposite, the complete opposite. Once I found I could ride a wave, then all of a sudden, okay, what can I do to get better on it? So I'd be watching the good guys and trying to match what they would do. You know, as a young kid, three or four days in, I was paddling out the back and, People are like, what are you doing out here? You shouldn't be out here, you know, and I'd get washed up, you know, lose my board. But because I grew up swimming, I wasn't scared of the water. So I think that's right. what helped me move forward really quickly was the fact that I was comfortable in the water. It didn't scare me. So I just wanted to ride as many ways as I possibly could and that encouraged my, my learning curve was, was pretty quick. You talked about your dad earlier on who obviously had a pretty adventurous life himself floating yes. around in some of those places but, yes. but saying that, you know, he, he would have been happier for you to be playing soccer or, or football. So what's the relationship like with your father when you start to, you know, surfing in the 70s and 80s, it's not a career path at all no. for a young man. No, it's not. Um, and I could see his way of thinking. Um, you know, even right down to the day I won the world title, he said, well, imagine how good you could have been in soccer if you won the world title of surfing. You could have. He still <laughs> found it hard to, to congratulate me on that, which... You know, old school, mate, that's that's how they were born, that's how they grow up and that's how they were taught. So, you know, it, it's um, it was tough. It was tough to not have him down there watching me because of the fact that, number one, he was away working and, number two, when he was back, he was more interested going and watching the footy and, and getting pissed with his mate. So um, it's just the way it was. Um, I didn't really care about what anyone else thought about it. I knew I loved it, I knew I was into it and I knew that there was nothing going to stop me getting where I wanted to in that sport. It's a pretty deep question uh, this early on, but have you had a chance to, or did you have a chance to ever talk about it with your dad as, as you were, as he got older and as you became your own man? Um, yeah, well, he passed away a couple of years ago. Sorry to hear um, that. But, yeah, we we never really talked about it, you know. It was one of those elephant in the the, the room sort of scenarios. Um, you know, he, he kind of... Uh, I don't think he ever got over the fact that I gave up soccer. I mean, you know, he saw the potential in me, and so did my coaches, and my coaches said, look, if you give up surfing, you'll be a great soccer player. And I said, well, if I give up soccer, I'll be a great surfer. <laughs> and so this was the battle. And, and 
you know, my coach would always go to my dad and my dad would drag me down to soccer and, um, and I'd stand there and he goes, you're not into it, what's going on? I said, well, the waves are pumping right now, I need to be surfing, you know. So um, he just saw slowly I was losing interest in it and I think that crushed him. Uh, I think deep down he knew I could have been a very successful soccer player, but, um, I, you know, I had other, other plans. So talking about those plans, let's progress a bit. Before you get, turn pro, at what stage do you start as a young bloke surfing bigger waves and big waves? Um, well, I grew up in, obviously, the Durban beachfront. It's um, it's kind of reminds me of the Gold Coast, um, same sort of water temperature. Um, every morning you can, you know, paddle out with a pair of boardies on, so it's it's really user-friendly. So just the more you get in the water, I think for me it was equipment. Equipment was a big ch- a game changer for me. Um, I got a new board when I was 12 and it was a six foot four single fin. And I was surfing at this little local beach that we had called South Beach with a couple of the local boys and uh, the waves were big. It was like six foot and, and because of the way the beach is situated, it's kind of tucked in so it doesn't get a, a, you know all the swell. So further down the coast where they have all the events at the Bay of Plenty, yep. it was too big. It was like six to eight foot, ten foot sets, whatever. So they brought the competition down and had it right in front of where we all surfed and we all the local boys would sort of like piss off, piss off, this is our beach and um, <laughs> and they said, look, if you guys come in, we'll, we'll enter you in the contest and it was pretty good sort of size waves. I was surfing more on the inside and, um, you know, there was obviously six foot waves out the back and as a, a 12-year-old you, you're sort of looking at that like it's 20 foot, you know, um, and so we sort of all thought about it and went, okay, let's go in and kick these guys' butts. So we went in, we entered in the, the contest and they created a novice division, which is like first ever surfing event that you've been in. And I ended up getting the third highest score out of the entire event wow. um, on a six foot four board that was too big for me, riding waves I'd never ridden before. And I think from that day on, I was kind of, I was really hooked. Um, my name was in the newspaper, uh, Sean Thompson's dad uh, came up to me and said, um, you know, is your parents here? And I said, no. And, they, and I'm like, why? And he goes, because I want to sponsor you. And I said, what does that mean? What is sponsoring? You know, and he goes, I want to give you like surfboards and stuff. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so that was kind of the the accidental, you know, the beautiful accident, you'd call it, of, of me starting surfing competitively. But that was when it was, you know, that change from riding the shore break to having to go out the back and prove that you've got it against all the big boys. And, and yeah, that was a game changer. Back to Martin in a moment. I've still got a few balls in the air as to who will be next up on the show in two weeks' time on Thursday, July 16. Stand by on that one. In the meantime, you may have missed some of the episodes in the back catalogue, so why not go back to the early days and have a listen to episode three with former AFL champion and now Brecky Radio star Brendan Favola. The big fib spoke very openly about his life, the good where he was one of the most dominant players in the comp and the not so good when he was battling with gambling. I started with this book, you had two grand at the start of the day and by the end of the day I'd won 360 grand. By the You're end of the freaking day. kidding me. So I won 360, I was on fire, I couldn't miss and I was hitting about two in the morning we were betting at Hong Kong. Oh, on horses? And I'd had a few, on horses, yeah, I'd had a few drinks. So two grand into 365 360, grand. I think it was 365 or $8,000 I won. And then... Now, hang on, because I... Because I sold Alex... Oh, go on, go on, go on. That I've won, won all this money. So we try to get it out the next day with a bookie, but you're not allowed to get it out to the Monday. And this was obviously a Thursday now. So I had to wait till Monday. And, you know, when you're a gambler, you want to bet it. So by Sunday, I was 20 down. I'd lost it all and 20 down. Then Alex left. 
So, so that's it. I'm out. You lost around eighty five grand in three days. Yeah, three days. Yeah. Give me a chase on the tail. That's Brendan Favola on episode three of the show. Hey, just before we resume with Martin, people often ask me what podcast I like to listen to. Well, I've got one for you, especially if you like motorsport. A good mate of mine, Greg Rust, rolls out a ripping show called Rusty's Garage. I worked with Rusty for years at Channel 10 on all sorts of broadcasts. A very funny dude. And what Rusty doesn't know about motorsport isn't worth knowing. Thruster also, by the way, does an absolutely elite Kimi Räikkönen impression, especially late at night. But anyway, I'm getting off the track. The podcast is called Rusty's Garage. It features all sorts of motorsport folk from Casey Stoner to Mark Scaife. It is a cracker. Get on board. Just search Rusty's Garage wherever you get your podcasts to listen. Alrighty, back to pots. So why were you so competitive? Like winning events as, you, as you're a young fella, what does it do for you? Um, for me, it was, I think I just wanted to get out of where I was. I think that's what it was for me. Um, get as, out of what? As, as I said, as I grew up, I started realising that, that the country I lived in had issues. Um, you know, the, the ladies would come down and collect salt water because they have a witch doctor. They don't really go and see modern medicine doctors. They have a, a tribal witch doctor. So the witch doctor tells them, if you've got an upset tummy, you go to the beach, you collect salt water, you drink it, it makes you makes you throw up and gets rid of the bad stuff inside of you. So the, the ladies go down and they collect salt water at the water's edge, but they're so scared of the ocean that um, it's hard for them to get the water. So I'd go down and help them get the water. And as I'd walk up, the people on the beach are calling me, you know, names and stuff for helping the, the ladies. I'm like, well, I can't even tell you what they were saying because it's just so derogatory. Um, and I went, well, what's going on here? You know, this is not good. And, and then um, when I sort of got really good as far as an amateur goes. I started to, I represented South Africa with a Springbok team and we went to California. Well, I was 14 years old, went to California and surfed against the NSSA, surfed against Tom Curran and all those guys, smoked them, came back. Um, and when I came back, I realised there is a massive change here, like what was going on in the States compared to what was happening in South Africa. I just felt uncomfortable, you know, and everyday living there just was felt worse and worse and worse. So for me, it was like, I want to turn pro and I want to get out, I want to get out of here and get on the road. And that's exactly what happened. So you turned pro at 15? 15, yeah. yeah. What did that mean at the time as a 15 year old in South Africa turning pro? <laughs> what did that actually mean? Oh, it was the biggest joke anyone's ever heard. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, people, all my friends were, were telling me that I've lost my mind. Um, the media were jumping, jumping all over it saying, you know, is, is this kid actually allowed to be a professional? He's too young. So there was all this controversy and, and, and like, laughter, really. All the, the people, all the guys that were pro were looking at me, shaking their head, going, mate, we're going to eat you up. And I was like, okay, bring it on. And so it was a bit of a joke to start off with um, until I won the very first pro event that I, t- I, I entered in South Africa. Tell me about that. Um, it was at a place called Nahoon Reef and... Because it was right before that big international events, and so all the local pros were warming up with that event, including Sean Thompson, who was the hero. He was like one of my heroes, um, still is one of my heroes. Um, and I ended up making it all the way to the final up against Sean and then beat Sean in the final. So at 15, won my very first professional event, and that was right before the big international event. So it kind of shut everyone up a little bit. Um, you know, Sean sent me uh, a telex back then, it was called, a, a, a telex from the from the post office, and it was like, 
Congratulations, um, you know, looking forward to seeing your future blossom. It was the, it was the most beautiful message I've ever had from anyone. Um, I think he could see that the, the writing was on the wall, there was a new breed coming up and I was the beginning of that. Um, but he ended up being my mentor as time progressed. But that first pro event kind of made me think, well, hey, I can mix it up with the best in the world because I just beat Sean Thompson, who was at that stage top three or four in the world. Um, in six to eight foot waves at Nahoon Reef. So um, it, it kind of got me really excited for what was to come. Was there a check that came with the victory? There was a check that came with the victory. Um, I think it was like maybe 500 bucks or something like that. Um, and for a, for a 14 year old, 15 year old kid, 500 bucks in the bank's huge. So, so did you then, did, did that, you said the internationals were coming for the events. Was that yep. in the days of the. Was it the was it the Gunston, the Gunston 500? Yeah, Gunston 500. So yep. then you went into a fully fledged tour event, did you? At age 15. At age 15, um, <laughs> that was in July of 1981. Can you imagine that now, Pots? Like <laughs> life's changed, but can you imagine that now? Like 15, and you're yeah. competing against well, like, seasoned, pretty tough men. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're looking at the, the guys I competed against. The guys like Mark Richards, Simon Anderson, Dan Kiloa, You know. Um, Hans Hedeman, Sean Thompson. I mean, these guys are, are six foot plus men, yep. you know, and, and I'm like 15, half the size of them, barely haven't even shaved yet, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and like I said, it was it was kind of a joke for everyone in the beginning and, and I had to really prove myself because I had to go through the trials. There was no automatic invite, you know what I mean? So you, three days before the main event starts, they run the trials and there's two or 300 guys in the trials and they choose... I think it was 14 guys come out of the trials to surf against the top 16 guys with two sponsors' exemptions. And I had to surf all the way through those, like, three days of competition with six guys in a heat just to get to the main event. So once I got to the main event, I thought, oh, there's only one other guy in the water now. This has got to be easy. And I ended up making it all the way through to the finals and eventually lost to Shane Haran, uh, who was at that stage number two in the world. So I beat everyone along the way except him and lost in the final. So got a second in my very first international event. So that was kind of huge. So I went from 500 bucks in the bank to 3,500 bucks in the bank. <laughs> so now I'm ripping. So now I've got, got the taste, you know. Now I'm saying to myself, all right, next event, let's go. And I was just, that's how I was. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't scared. I wasn't, um, I, did, I wasn't intimidated by these guys because I knew they couldn't beat me up because I was like a little kid. Um, and I knew I, I knew I had them. I knew I had them scared. I knew I had them on the back foot. They were they were absolutely terrified of losing to a fifteen year old. So where's your first international event? Where's your first event out of South Africa? Uh, that was Brazil. So hang on, hang on. So <laughs> who'd you go with? Like uh, you obviously no, get on a plane. Yeah, how, got, how does it work? Well, I I basically uh, and that's where I said Sean Thompson came into play because I called him and said, "How do you do this?" And he goes, "Well, you got to book your flight. You got to book your accommodation. You got to do." So he ran me through all the steps that I have to make to get to from point A to point B. Um, so at a young age, I was, you know, booking my flights and jumping on, going to the bank, getting traveler's checks, you know, and, you know, jumping on the plane and waving goodbye to the family and landing in Rio de Janeiro at 15 and having to work my way from the airport to the Copacabana and, and you know, get myself sorted. By yourself? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the guys didn't want to help me because... Like I said, they were kind of afraid of me. So I think they, you know, I was standing at the airport waiting for a bus and all the guys are leaving in their rental cars. So I was 15, I couldn't rent a car. So, And I'm thinking <laughs> one of them's going to stop and give me a lift and none of them did. 
<laughs> right? And I thought, all right, game on, you guys. And so that's, that was sort of my motivation of getting back at them was to, was to beat them. Before we get to what happened in the water, just just explore that a little bit because you will look back on it now and, and, and I know your young bloke sort of, how old your young bloke now? He's 17. Right. So this is two years prior. So you're, you're in a hotel by yourself in Rio. Like, yep. <laughs> exactly. It's laughable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Um, and I would stand on the balcony and watch people get mugged as they walked on the, the, the Copacabana and stuff and... You know, it was it was semi sort of surreal, but um, I knew I was there for a reason, and that was to surf. And whatever I had to do or get through or or endure, I was going to do it because at the end of the day, there was nothing more important to me than than you know surfing and winning and, and trying to be the best. Not enormous amount of money, prize money in pro surfing at that stage. So when you're paddling out against uh, seasoned competitors, they've got a family and trying to provide for their family. How were you treated? Take me into the water in oh. those days. Well, there was no priority back then, right? So it was it was basically all in brawl. Um, I don't know if you remember seeing a couple of years ago, John John had a heat with Ezekiel Lau at Bells Beach, and Ezekiel Lau basically paddled around him and, and sort of yes, yes, I do. Did you remember that? Okay, I that do. that was every single time I surfed that happened. <laughs> so they, they would they would try and intimidate me, the the, the Dankiloas and the Simons and the Shawns and. They would literally try and paddle over the top of me. Um, I remember I had a, a heat with Mark Richards and um, I got the first wave of the heat and I thought, okay, that was a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm in with a chance. And I was paddling back out and, and he took off on this wave and I, th- I, I I sort of almost stopped because I was still a kid and there's Mark Richards. And so I had to like try and divorce myself from who he was. He was just another competitor. But, you know, you're fascinated with his style and he's like, he's a world champion and that's what I want to be. So I'm watching every minute of it. And he sees me out of the corner of his eye and all of a sudden he, he does this big sort of check turn and comes straight at me and, and I'm like, oh, shit, he's going to run me over. And I had to duck dive under and he went straight over the top of me and I thought if I hadn't a duck dived really deep, he would have killed me. He, he tried to take me out and wow. it was that intimidation factor. Um, even though Mark Richards out of the water is one of the nicest guys you've ever met, but why has he got four world titles by not being a nice guy? He's, a, he's, a, he's an absolute animal in the water the eyes go back like a great white when he puts the singlet on you know and this is the thing you've got to deal with it's that intimidation thing so as soon as the horn blew i would run for my life and try and catch a few waves before they would get started so then they'd have to focus on their game rather than trying to stop me so my whole game was to get the first wave of the of the heat put the pressure straight on them so they'd have to focus on surfing rather than trying to take me out and that's kind of how it operated it was it's pretty terrifying when you got someone like dan kilo who's a Six foot two Hawaiian is built like a brick shit house, and he's chasing you around the lineup, you know. And it's uh, you just run for your life and try and catch a wave. There's a there's a there's a lot of um, to find out more about you, Potts. There's not a great deal of information there, and there's various sort of those rumors and urban legends and, and <laughs> stories that I'll, I'll put to you as we yeah. go on because I'm I'm absolutely loving this chat. There's talk about when you know you started and you put your stamp, but. Um, Various articles refer to you surfing a wave at Pipeline. Um, I've got it written actually down here, and it said you arrived on the world stage with an outer reef bomb at age 17, and it sent, I quote to you, which is called collective gasps 
echoed around the surfing world. And I read that and it really captured my imagination. So please tell me. Please tell me that. All right. Be- before we get there, I've got to, well, I've got to fill yes. in the gap. Because please do. my first year in Hawaii uh, in 1981, um, the sponsors that picked me up through, the, the, through that year because I was doing well, I ended up getting a sponsor by the end of the year, which was Gotcha Sportswear. Um, so he said, look, come to Hawaii, gain some experience. Um, you don't really need to surf in the events because you've already qualified. You've, you've added enough points to get yourself into the top 16 surfers in the world, which means you automatically qualify for next year. No more trials, no more hassling. So I go to Hawaii. I've got a couple of boards, not big enough, obviously, because Hawaii is completely different to everywhere else. Shit myself in like, I think I was there for about a week and then I left. They, they were saying a massive swell's coming. And so I got, I, I just packed my bags and left. And the surfing world just pooped all over me for doing that. You left because of the fear of I what left, was coming. I left because I was genuinely scared for my life. Okay. So I left and then the, the, the media wrote me off. My, you know, my peers wrote me off. Oh, he's, what he's, were they saying about oh, you? Oh, just, you know, okay, he's good in small ways, but when it gets to the big stuff, he, he, he can't handle it. Huh. And I went, okay. So I, I had to stew on that for a whole year leading up to Hawaii. And 82, fast forward, um, I make it through to the semifinals of the Pipe Masters, my first ever Pipe Masters, by the way. Um, make it to the semifinals. I've got Mark Richards, Robert Bartholomew, and Michael Ho, three legends out there. So they go, okay, there's a massive swell coming. We're going to call it off and we're going to wait for that swell to hit. Two days later, the swell hits and it's literally 15 foot, second reef, biggest pipeline I've ever seen in my life. And I'm in the semifinals. Obviously, my heroes, I'm sitting there. My first three waves, I absolutely wipe out and I get held under and I come up and I think, okay, I'm still alive, everything's okay. Next wave hits me, boom, I go under again, come up. Okay, that was a bit heavier, but I'm still alive. Third wave was a bit bigger, aided on that one, got picked up, slammed down, hit the bottom, came up and thought, wow, that was heavy, but I'm still alive, so all good, get into it. So I paddle back out and this massive set comes and because those three were so focused on themselves, they forgot about me and I just beelined it for the middle of the ocean for one reason and one reason only because I was so scared and I thought the further out I get, the better it's going to be for me, right? So I paddled for my life and I paddled in the right direction and that wave just stood up on the second reef and just went, here I am, you know, and I had to go. Uh, After all the talk, after all the stuff people wrote about me, this was my moment to, you know, prove to myself that, you know, I'm not just here making up the numbers, you know, I can handle it in big ways. And I spun and went on that wave and the other guys couldn't believe it. Um, I think Michael Ho let out the F-bomb when I took off on it because he knew it was the one. Yep. And um, I screamed the whole way through that wave and, and got spat out the end and got a perfect 10 for it. And, um, yeah, that was, that was that sliding door moment that I think if I had to let that wave go, uh, I don't think I would have been who I, who I am today. I think I would have regretted that for the rest of my life and I think that would have crushed me. Wow, that's a, that's a great story. Just let me digress for a moment. That's the thing I like about this any podcast. Yeah. You just go in all sorts of yeah, directions. Exactly. What's been your most fearful moment in the ocean? Um, there's been a couple. Um, obviously, wipe wipeouts at Pipeline, and um, uh, I had a crazy one at Waimea Bay that was a two wave hold down. Uh, thought I was going to drown. Um, that was the first time I really panicked uh, underwater. Take me into that. Um, well, you. It was during an, a, a Billabong event, um, and back then the Billabong event was mobile, so 
wherever the wherever the waves were pumping on the North Shore, that's where they'd have the comp, which was so mm-hmm. perfect, you know, because yes. some days they have pipeline, the event's running, but sunset's better. So Billabong decided to have a movable event. So it went from pipeline to sunset to Waimea Bay one day. And the, the day we had at Waimea Bay was the whole North Shore was closed out. It was 20, 25 foot. And um, I pulled out a nine foot six board that I'd never ridden before and paddled out of my head and the set came through and I was found myself somehow on the inside, which I didn't want to have because <laughs> that means it's your go. Um, and the crowd, the, the, I heard the crowd, the drums were beating on the beach and people were screaming and I knew it was the biggest set of the day. And I paddled as fast as I could and the guy paddling next to me said, are you going to go? And I hadn't even looked at it yet and I looked up and it was like the, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen, the whole ocean was like standing up you know and normally it's just sort of this peak and they've got this deep channel this wave was across the whole bay and it just stood right up like that and um gary elkin said are you going to go and i went that's what i'm here for you know and so i spun around and i started paddling and and the the water patrol and all the caddies in the in the channel were yelling go 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 and and i was like oh shit now i really have to go and so i just put i didn't even look back because i knew that wave was moving so fast I needed to get speed up to actually catch it. Felt like I was on it, stood up and went, okay, now I'm dead, you know, and I sort of free fell down, landed, fell off, and then the wave picked me up and slammed me. So I did it up and over. So by the time I caught up and over about here, I felt like I needed air um, and I was still about to get the worst part of the wipeout. So that wave took me down, held me down, held me down. On the way back up, the next one ran over the top of me finally got up and got washed into the channel th- throwing up water and all kinds of stuff and just yeah. just 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 on that so when you're down there um is there time for conscious thought yep and what is the thought um <clears throat> i thought apart from get up i thought i didn't call mum this morning i should have called oh. i should have called mum this morning uh and then i thought you idiot you're, you're gonna die in front of all these people like all these people are gonna watch you drown you know and and then I thought, no, hang on a sec, I'm not going to die, you know. And it's like you kind of snap out into it. And there was, I went through a moment of panic where I actually swallowed water. I felt like I, it was that reflex where I needed a breath and I couldn't hang on any longer. Um, and I actually, like, just gulped two, two mouthfuls of water. And that gave me three or four more seconds to get up. Um, I didn't sort of go, <gasps> you know, I kind of just swallowed the water. So it kind of went down into my stomach rather than into my lungs. Uh, and it gave me two or three more seconds that I needed to, to break the surface. Uh, so what, and, have you, what, what have you learned along the journey then about fear and how to deal with fear? If there's any doubt, don't paddle out. Right. I think that is one of the, the things I teach my son. Um, if you're standing on the beach and you don't feel right, don't do it because then you, you're, you're outside of your comfort zone. Um, you know, he's, he's not looking to be a professional surfer. He loves surfing just for the pure enjoyment out of it. So, you know, he, he's not, a, he's not a, a charger like I used to be, but not, not yet anyway. Um, but he loves surfing. And I'd always say if you, if you have any doubt before you paddle out, just don't do it, you know, because you're going to put yourself into a, a situation where as soon as you panic and, and that panic sets in, you're done. You don't think straight, you, you, your body's not working properly and that's when, you, you know, you can drown or, or, or get badly hurt. That's the end of Martin Potter Part A. So much more to come in Part B. You know the drill.
Listener.